Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Ten years ago, thousands of immigrants living in the United States had their dreams answered. Imagine you've done everything right your entire life. Studied hard, worked hard, maybe even graduated at the top of your class, only to suddenly face the threat of deportation to a country that you know nothing about with a language that you may not even speak. That's what gave rise to the DREAM Act. It says that if your parents brought you here as a child, you've been here for five years, and you're willing to go to college or serve in our military, you can one day earn your citizenship. President Obama's policy in 2012 gave protections to more than 611,000 undocumented immigrants to live and work in this country without fear of being deported. But their dream of American citizenship has been deferred over and over again due to congressional inaction and court challenges over the legality of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, program. Today, where we live, we look back at DACA and the legal challenges ahead. We also hear from one of the early recipients here in Connecticut and from another Connecticut resident who was not eligible for the program. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up later, we talk about the economic impact of immigrants to the nation, a nation experiencing a labor shortage. Our first guest on Zoom is Michael Wishney, who's a professor at Yale Law School and founder of the Worker and Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Lucy. So we know since 2012, DACA has faced a a whole series of legal challenges uh, when it was first created by President Obama. Today, the Biden administration has said it will strengthen DACA through regulation. So describe where we are right now in terms of court challenges. Well, it has been a real roller coaster, unfortunately, and this contributed um, to a huge amount of uncertainty around the program. Um, There have been quite a lot of lawsuits filed. Um, Some initially were filed by attorneys generals in uh, red states to challenge the expansion of DACA in 2014 and eventually DACA itself, um, as well as a related program for parents. Um, In addition, there have been uh, a number of lawsuits filed. I think there were at least nine at one point pending um, to challenge the efforts by uh, President Trump and his administration to end DACA. Um, Many of those cases were resolved in 2020 by the Supreme Court um, in which it agreed that the Trump administration had unlawfully sought to terminate the program. Uh, However, uh, in the last couple of years, there the renewal of lawsuits by the 
Republican attorneys general has again endangered the program and led to a ruling by a judge in Texas holding that the entire program is unlawful. That ruling is temporarily on hold um, while appeals play out, but those appeals are moving forward. Um, and therefore there is unfortunately a, a mortal threat um, right now to the continued program. I understand you and your colleagues at the law clinic at Yale have a, have a case pending in New York regarding that Texas order. Can you tell us about that? Uh, sure. Uh, yes, that's correct. We do. Um, uh, working with our colleagues at Make the Road New York and the National Immigration Law Center, um, we actually filed what I think may have been the very first lawsuit about DACA all the way back in 2016. It was a very different posture back then. Through some of the twists and turns of recent years, that case has uh, been reshaped. Um, and most recently, um, at the end of 2020, um, our, in, in our case, a federal judge in Brooklyn, in New York, um, forced the reopening of DACA to new applications at the end of 2020 for the first time in, uh, in several years. Um, Unfortunately, in the summer of 21, last summer, the same judge in Texas who, didn't, who had issued some of the initial hostile rulings uh, issued another opinion uh, in July of 21, holding the DACA is unlawful. And as I mentioned, um, pausing his order in part while appeals go forward so that renewals can continue, but new applications um, he ordered to be closed off. We then returned to federal court uh, in Brooklyn earlier this year, um, asking the judge in Brooklyn to clarify the relationship between his prior orders that DACA be reopened and the judge in Texas's orders that DACA as a whole was unlawful. Uh, and that uh, effort in Brooklyn is pending. In fact, uh, uh, on consecutive days, um, right after July 4th, the Fifth Circuit on July 6th will hear the appeal from the Texas decision. And the next day on July 7th, the judge in Brooklyn will hear arguments uh, on our effort to address the interplay, the relationship between these two orders. And in, in particular, um, between the time, I know it's a little technical, but between the time that the judge in Brooklyn ordered DACA reopened, for the first time in years, that was at the end of 2020. And the day seven months later, when the judge in Texas held that DACA itself was unlawful, more than 80,000 people applied for DACA in that window, that seven month window for the first time, people who had been shut out from applying because of the prior court cases. Those 80,000 people are hanging in limbo. Um, they followed the judge in Brooklyn's order paid their fees, submitted fingerprints, applied for DACA for the first time. But after the Texas ruling in July, uh, the government has just kind of uh, held those applications without advancing them. And I think that's going to be the main focus of the next stage of the New York case. And meantime, what can the Biden administration do, if at all, when we think about these 80,000 people that are in limbo, Mike? Well, yeah, from our perspective, there's a lot that they can and should do um, from continuing to process the applications up to the point of decision so that if DACA reopens, they are ready to finally adjudicate them to even more importantly, um, fashioning a, a program of interim relief for those 80,000 people while these various appeals and lawsuits play out. 
Uh, I mentioned the appeal will be heard in the Fifth Circuit on July 6th, but that's unlikely to be the final word. That court may well take months to reach a decision, but the case then could easily go to the Supreme Court, which could mean at least another year or more of litigation in the interim. Uh, we've asked the court to order the Biden administration to provide some kind of temporary relief for pending applications, as uh, the government does in many other immigration postures, where for one reason or another, there's a delay in processing. The government will frequently provide some kind of interim opportunity to work and protection from deportation. So at a minimum, we are seeking that. Um, and we, in our view, the Biden administration could do that tomorrow. Nothing in the ruling in Texas prohibits the Biden administration from providing interim opportunity to work and protection for deportation for this additional 80,000 people mm -hmm. beyond the 600,000 people who have DACA now. You're hearing Michael Wishney here on Where We Live. He's a professor at the Yale Law School and founder of the Worker and Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic. As we look back at 10 years of this program, DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, uh, first enacted by President Obama in 2012, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, we wanted to talk with a Connecticut resident who has been helped by DACA. Carolina Bortoletto joins us now now on Zoom. She's co-founder of Connecticut Students for a Dream. Carolina, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me today. Uh, before we learn more about um, your application process and what it's been like uh, over the last several years, uh, how are you doing today? I understand that you just graduated with a master's in, in public health. Um, yeah, I, I graduated last month. Um, it took me seven years, though, to get my master's. Because although, and I'll, I'll explain this a little bit more about later, but although DACA does give you uh, a work permit and some protection for deportation, there's a lot that it doesn't do, right? And one of the things that it doesn't do is allow you to access most kinds of like scholarships or financial aid. So it, it took me seven years to get the master's just because I had to pay my own way. And, you know, and so it was a long process. <laughs> Well, congratulations to you for getting that master's. But as you mentioned, uh, DACA gave some protections, but there was still a lot uh, that was left for, for you to shoulder. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your story uh, when you and your family came to the U.S. and, and ended up in the Danbury area? Yeah, uh, so me and my family are from Brazil. We came to Connecticut in 1998, so that was... I always lose count, <laughs> you know, over 20 years ago. I came here when I was nine years old. I'm currently 34. So I'm an, I'm undocumented. I'm a, you know, I'm a DACA recipient. I was able to apply for DACA uh, for the first time in 2012, at the end of 2012. And since then, I think I reapplied at least five times. Uh, sometimes it's hard, hard to keep track. Um, so when I applied for DACA, there were many things that DACA allowed me to do that I didn't have the chance to before it. I was able to get a driver's license here in Connecticut. I was able to uh, get a better paying job. So it definitely opened up opportunities for me. But you know, I also want to make clear that there's a lot that DACA doesn't do, even for the people who you know were lucky enough to meet all the the, cut, the arbitrary cutoff dates. Some of the things that DACA doesn't give its recipients is access to financial aid to go to college. Um, also access to healthcare. DACA recipients are currently not eligible for like the Husky program here in Connecticut or even to buy uh, 
healthcare on the marketplace uh, using subsidies, we're excluded from those. So there's still a lot that the DACA doesn't give us. So there's a lot of stress when you think about, especially living in the pandemic, uh, if you uh, uh, fall ill, the fact that you're shouldering those costs as well, Carolina? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think Mike, who was the guest just now, did a good job of talking about all the, the court cases that we've seen for DACA since uh, Trump killed the program back in 2007. Um, it's a very complicated legal battle that's in many different courts. And I think what comes to mind after hearing Mike explain all that is that most people who have DACA are not really, and I'm not either, like familiar with the ins and outs of the, the legal issues surrounding DACA. All we know is that there keeps being so many court cases and our livelihood is hanging by a thread. You know, at every court decision, there's a possibility that DACA is taken away. And then that's, you know, people's livelihoods. Because many DACA recipients, most DACA recipients aren't young, like high school students or college students. Most, the average age of DACA recipients is 26 years old. A lot of them use their DACA work permits to support their families. A lot of them have kids of their own. A lot of them are homeowners. And so at every court case, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people around the country see their, their lives and their livelihoods hanging in the balance. And I think that's important to to point out is that for 10 years, DACA has been like a, a temporary band-aid and or elected officials haven't really, you know, won us or fought for anything permanent. We just had this temporary work authorization for 10 years. So 10 years of DACA has meant 10 years of temporary and 10 years of like, or livelihoods hanging in the balance. And I think it's, you know, it's time for elected officials to, to do something permanent uh, because DACA only helps a small percentage of undocumented folks in this country. You know, my parents don't qualify for DACA. Many other uh, people that I know don't qualify for DACA. And people think that DACA is like, a, you know, something that students can qualify for. But this year, there are 100,000 undocumented high school students who are graduating high school. Most of them don't qualify for DACA because they would have had to arrive to the U.S. by 2007, and most of them arrived after. So the current like high school students and college students who are undocumented, they actually don't have any avenues for relief mm -hmm. or avenues of applying for a work permit. Uh, and Carolina, but, we'll be talking with one of them uh, coming up on the show. You're hearing Carolina Bortoletto again, co-founder of Connecticut Students for a Dream. Uh, she was and her sister were one of the early recipients of this program after the policy was enacted in 2012. Uh, you had mentioned the Trump administration moved to terminate DACA in 2017. And so maybe explain to our listeners more about when we think about renewing every two years you have to renew and that comes with a fee and so in a way you're living life in two-year increments yeah yeah exactly every two years uh, you have to reapply and you have to pay the fee which is 495 dollars and then fill out some paperwork and submit for fingerprints uh so yeah people definitely have to plan their lives in in the two-year increments mm. Uh, Michael Wishney is still with us. Uh, again, he's with uh, Yale Law School and also uh, the founder of the Worker and Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic. Uh, Michael, I wonder if you can you can respond to Carolina's story again. We talked about the 80,000 new applicants that, that are in limbo, but this, this idea of, of so many that 
are waiting to see if, uh, you know, Congress will act, uh, whether the Biden administration will act and, you know, how these court cases are going to be resolved. Yes, well, that's really the heart of it. And as Carolina said, um, DACA was never intended as anything more than a temporary and narrow program for a small number of the millions of undocumented people in this country at that time. Um, and many people were always left outside of DACA because they were older uh, or they came afterwards. Um, and even those uh, who were fortunate enough to be in DACA, um, as Carolina explained so powerfully, um, have had to live with the uncertainty and the ups and downs and twists in terms of the court cases. Um, the problem is that Congress has failed to enact enduring permanent solutions, um, not only for people who currently have DACA or might otherwise be eligible for DACA, but for many others too. Um, and uh, really the, the fault there is primarily with the Republicans in Congress who have resisted uh, time and again for more than 20 years, uh, all manner of um, uh, efforts to really update and modernize our immigration laws, which have not been seriously revised since 1996, uh, more than a generation. Um, but the uh, Democrats are not without responsibility also, in my view. Um, and the Biden administration itself has failed to make this a priority. Uh, I think, if anything, it has worked hard to uh, duck and try to avoid immigration issues, um, often, I believe, for uh, based on a political judgment that it's just not good politics. But we certainly have not seen Biden himself um, lean in to uh, an effort to a serious effort to enact bipartisan legislation. For, for many years, there's been no question that there is a center of gravity, there is broad agreement that our current immigration laws do not work um, for, for our families, for our communities, for the economy, uh, even for national security. There's a, uh, there is a lot of agreement about ways we could update and modernize our laws and allow a path to permanency and stability for millions of people who live uh, and make their home in this country. But the Biden administration has not prioritized that. Um, the Republicans have uh, obstructed uh, for years. And the result is that this temporary band-aid, um, as, as was said, uh, has become more of a lifeline. And that's simply inadequate to the needs of our nation. Uh, earlier, you'd mentioned the potential of this uh, getting to the Supreme Court. Could the Supreme Court answer the constitutionality question, or is it more procedural, Mike? Well, both kinds of arguments have been made in the cases, uh, procedural arguments as well as statutory and constitutional arguments. Um, it's hard to predict you know, what version of the case might go to the Supreme Court and, of course, what the court might do with it. I think it was uh, somewhat uh, unexpected the way the court ruled in 2020. Um, that said, I, I think that the court is um, perhaps unlikely to reach large constitutional issues here and is more likely, I believe, uh, to decide the case on statutory or procedural grounds. But it's still, it's still quite early to be able to say anything with confidence about what the Supreme Court might do. Mm. 
Carolina Bortoletto is still with us again, an early DACA recipient and co-founder of Connecticut Students for a Dream. As we talk about the last 10 years since this policy was enacted uh, to help undocumented immigrants who were living here, who came here as children to be able to live and work without fear of deportation. Uh, Carolina, so many delays and, and challenges ahead, but are you still holding on to the, the dream of becoming an American citizen? I think what the the tenure of DACA and obviously has like allowed me to reflect on is that DACA was a win by the immigrant rights movement and a lot of allies around the country who fought hard for several years to put pressure on the Obama administration to do something. And that's why he was, you know, he was pressured to do something. It was a true victory of the immigrant rights movement. And I think that does give hope for the future that if you know, if if we raise our voices and put enough pressure on the people who have the power to deliver, we are able to to win more real change for our immigrant communities uh, here in the U.S. And I think my my dream for going forward is that you know everyone in the immigrant community here in the U.S. is able to live a life of dignity and safety and not fear you know encountering immigration officials or or being deported. Um, and I think that's what's most important. You know, it isn't necessarily about citizenship, it's that we want people to live lives that are dignified and in safety so that they can reach their full potential. Mm-hmm. You know, earlier we talked about under the Obama administration, there was an attempt to expand DACA, I believe in 2015, that was also to cover parents. So that would include your parents, Carolina, and that didn't end up happening. So do you still worry about them? Yeah, my parents are, are still currently undocumented. I think they will have qualified under the DAPA program, but I believe it was stopped in the courts mm-hmm. um, in 2014 or 2015. And I think that's also important to point out, right? Because although DACA has given me safety, given me a driver license, given me a work permit, it still hasn't given my parents much safety. You know, if we're, if we're driving and there's a cop behind us, they still fear that any encounter with um, you know, law enforcement is going to put them in danger immigration-wise. And I think that's a, a fear that a lot of folks have uh, here, especially during the Trump years, and I don't think that still has gone away. Again, that's Carolina Bortoletto, uh, who lives in Connecticut, co-founder of Connecticut Students for a Dream. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Michael Wishney with Yale Law School will stay with us. And later we're going to hear from an economist. What questions do you have about DACA? It's been 10 years again since this policy was enacted. You can join us 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. 
So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we look back at 10 years of DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that started in 2012 under a policy by President Obama. Now, five years after that start date, the Trump administration terminated the program, but the courts have kept it open for people seeking renewals. Uh, last January, the Biden administration tried to reopen the program for first-time applicants, but another court action delayed that from happening. NPR reports about 80,000 and people are in limbo, their applications on hold indefinitely. Now, Connecticut and the rest of the country has a new generation of young, undocumented immigrants with no protections, like my next guest joining us on the phone, Najeli Clavijo, who's undocumented and does not qualify for DACA. Najeli, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for You're having me here. Thank you for, for calling in. You're also part of Connecticut Students for a Dream, and I mentioned you're not eligible for DACA. So tell us first a little bit about you and your family and when you arrived in the U.S. Yeah, so yes, I'm part of Connecticut Students for a Dream. Um, I came to the United States in 2013. At the end of 2013, I migrated from Ecuador. Um, I lived there for a year before migrating to Ecuador as well. I came here with a visa. I'm undocumented. Um, my whole family is undocumented, and I don't have any status at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of when you arrived, the cutoff date for DACA doesn't apply to you. That's right? Yes. I unfortunately don't apply for the requirements of to apply for DACA. Mm-hmm. And so can you tell us more about why your family came uh, to the U.S.? Uh, because, you know, many people wonder about uh, a person's story and how they end up here. Yes. So we came to the United States mainly because of the economic side. Um, in Ecuador, we were living with a budget of $200 monthly. And $200 is not a lot of money. We were struggling with food um, to eat, um, to buy clothes, to buy beds. It was, it was a struggle. Um, also because we, we also went to Ecuador, uh, from Spain, we migrated from Spain to Ecuador as well. And so the last resource to keep going with our lives and also find a, a stable place where we can create, um, and keep going with our, my brother's education and I was just to migrate to the United States. So now you attend college in Connecticut? Yes, I I was able to find, uh, to graduate from high school in 2018. It was also a struggle because I was working full time and I was committed to keep going with my education, even though it's um, it can be a skeptical thing as an undocumented student. But I'm currently in college, uh, trying to to graduate as a computer engineering um, degree. You said computer engineering. Yes. 
And so because we're in Connecticut, I understand that Connecticut Students for a Dream pushed for institutional aid for undocumented students. I believe that was passed in 2018. So did that help you, Najeli? Yes, it did help not only me, but a lot of the students, a lot of my friends. Um, it was such a relief um, and also a happy and sad moment. It took us five years to pass the financial aid. And it, I was able, before before um, before the the bill passing, I had to pay my, for my own pocket the, the, the first two, three semesters of college. And after that, I was able to apply for financial aid, which helped me out with a little bit of money to pay for some classes and keep going um, in college. And also other students, because going to college, it can be really hard as an undocumented student since we have to pay, um, really pay paycheck by paycheck. Mm. Uh, describe the path for you once you graduate. If you're not able to qualify for DACA, you know, what are some of your job prospects? Sorry, can you repeat the question again? Um, can you describe after you graduate from college, if DACA, um, if you're not able to uh, be eligible for DACA, you know, what are some of the, the potential jobs that, that you could apply for and, you know, and get despite not having the legal protections here? Yeah, so that is a really interesting question that um, I don't really have a lot of knowledge, mainly because uh, a lot of people know that if you go to school and you graduate from, from college, and you want to pursue your career, you have to. You need to have a social security number or a working permit. So those who have DACA, they have the fortune to to keep going with their with their education and also find a job. But for those like me that we don't qualify for any for any uh, work permit or, or DACA, um, it's just something that we just don't know uh, what to do. It can be a struggle to find a job. Maybe we just graduate and we just work somewhere else, but it's just, there is not like a right answer to what we can do after college. Mm -hmm. That must be frustrating when we hear, especially over the last two years, you know, there's a worker shortage, there are jobs available, uh, that you have uh, the skills, you're working towards your degree in a jelly, but you're not able to get that potential job if uh, DACA is not expanded to you. Yes, um, it is really frustrating, and a lot of people think that uh, the immigrant community don't afford anything to the United States, but we do. Uh, we do a lot, and by taking, by not not, not letting us have this small um, thing of having the right of work, the right of going to school, of driving, it's just it's just that. Um, but they could benefit from it, and they can also help us out, but they just don't do it. Uh, also, that guy's. Um, something that show everybody through have access to or at least the United States have a better performative thing. You hear Najeli Clavijo here on Where We Live. She's undocumented. Uh, she's been living in Connecticut and with her family, originally from Ecuador, and uh, she's pursuing a degree in computer engineering. Uh, we heard Carolina Bortoletto tell us earlier that it took her seven years to get her master's, uh, but she was committed. Uh, and so when we think about some of the, the challenges that remain, like uh, having uh, not been able uh, to have insurance, how has that impacted you and your family not being able to qualify uh, for Husky or Medicaid? It's really sad that 
the first, well, at least for me, the first time that I, when I came to the United States, my uncle told me, try not to get sick. And I didn't understand why. And it feels really sad to leave with the fear of not having access to healthcare because it's going to be expensive because we don't know um, what to do. But thankfully, thanks to C4D, we're pushing for the Husky for Immigrants for everybody. We were able to pass um, aid for 12 and 12 years old and minors to uh, have Husky, for Husky. But still, it is really, it's, it's, a, it's a human right that everybody should have regardless of immigration status because healthcare should be universal, should be something that everybody should have access to not just like a small portion of the population. And also after COVID, it was a struggle to see how many families, immigrant families didn't go to the hospital or get checked out because they know that the bill is going to be so expensive. And unfortunately, some of them passed away and it's just a sad but true story. So Connecticut Students for a Dream helped uh, get this uh, bill passed in the General Assembly to expand the Husky Health Program uh, to children 12 and younger who don't have a, a legal immigration status. Is that that's correct? Yes, yes. Connecticut Students for a Dream fought for, for Husky. So now 12 years old that are undocumented, uh, they can apply for uh, 12 years old and younger, they can apply for uh, Husky. Um, we were fighting, we're fighting for more, for more accessibility for everybody, regardless of the age and immigration status. But this is just a step, uh, forward to our win. Uh, but hopefully in the upcoming years, we can change that since we believe that everybody should have healthcare, not only until a certain age. Mm. Has that helped your, any members of your family, Najeli? Uh, unfortunately, it won't help. My brother, I have an 11 year, I have a 12 years old brother and he's not going to be able to apply for, for it since the requirements are still, he doesn't qualify for it. So it's, um, it's, it's frustrating because he suffers from asthma and he needs to get checked out and we try our best to do it since it's expensive. Uh, but yeah, no, no, no one in my family has access to healthcare right now. What has it been like uh, living in this pandemic, uh, knowing that if you or your members fall sick, that you know you're not able to have insurance to help you? Um, we we try we were trying to be really careful during the pandemic, but we still had to go to work uh, because no one was gonna pay our bills. We didn't get any any aid from the government as well. So yes, my family got sick during during COVID at the beginning of it. My brother got sick. And it was really scary because um, since I mentioned about has asthma, he we, have, we were so, super careful with him. Like there are some things that you cannot change, which is the fact of going to work and getting sick from a disease that was like unknown. So um, yeah, now things are are going better. Uh, we still try to get careful with our with ourselves, with our bodies, so we don't have to, so we can all get sick, so we don't have to worry about the, one, the bills, and also about having any medical issues, since we don't have any um, health care that can help us out at the moment. 
You're hearing Angelia Clavijo again here on Where We Live, uh, who's with Connecticut Students for a Dream. Mike Wishney still with us, founder of the Worker and Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic and professor at Yale Law School. Uh, Mike, uh, another a profile of a resident uh, working hard in our state but doesn't have these protections uh, as uh, you know, DACA doesn't apply to her and her family. To hear what the challenges of life have been for so many people, um, and you hear about the extraordinary efforts in, in what's just been shared by groups in Connecticut um, led by C4D to try to uh, almost backfill or make up for the failings of the federal government by trying to make financial aid available without regard to immigration status, make healthcare available, at least to some without regard to immigration status earlier, uh, to make driver's licenses available. All of this having to be done at the state level because the federal government, most especially Congress and now the Biden administration have failed to provide stability, security and dignity for millions of people around the country and, and, and tens of thousands of people here in Connecticut. And, uh, you know, um, listening to these stories, my own children are a little bit older. Um, they're a little bit further launched. Um, but it's hard enough to grow up in the middle of a pandemic and the political turbulence of the Trump years and the economic um, ups and downturns we've seen. It's just hard enough to to grow up and enter the world and um, start a career, secure education, to impose these kinds of burdens on millions of people um, who are just struggling to just lead lives, um, go to school, <laughs> start a job. Um, on top of that, the possibility, the uncertainty that Carolina described of uh, parents being taken away at any time or one's own life being disrupted is just, it just feels criminal. It's immoral, it's senseless. And um, the ability of so many people like Nigeli and Carolina and so many others, nevertheless, to persevere um, is is just extraordinary to hear. Uh, I hope that no other generation ever has to go through what they've experienced. Um, and we are so lucky in Connecticut that groups like C4D have found a way to make it a little bit easier for people to survive and to thrive here. Um, mm. But it's uh, it's long past due for Congress to act. So we'll see, wait to see what happens uh, in the Fifth Circuit uh, with that appeal to be argued in an early July. That's Mike Wishney, founder again of the Worker and Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic and professor at Yale Law School. Mike, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. And Ajeli Clavijo for coming on the show to talk about her family's experience. Good luck with you, Najeli. We hope to hear from you again. Thank you so much. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, we're going to talk more about the economic impact of immigrants to our nation. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Now, many studies have shown the economic impact immigrants bring to the United States. The Higher Ed Immigration Portal finds that immigrant residents, including undocumented immigrants and DACA-eligible residents, all contribute spending power, and they pay federal, state, and local taxes. In Connecticut, federal tax contributions of DACA-eligible residents was about $39 million. State and local tax contributions of DACA-eligible residents was about $30 million. For more, joining us now on Zoom is Fred Karstensen, professor of economics at the University of Connecticut. Fred, welcome back. Can you hear us, Fred? Um, can you hear me now? Yep, we can hear you now. Welcome back to the show. You know, we had some interesting profiles of two uh, young women, uh, the people we're talking about, uh, undocumented residents who bring so much uh, to our state. And I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, why this is so vital, a state that has one of the oldest populations in the country. Well, uh, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, the uh, immigrants provide an enormous amount of vitality to the American economy. Uh, every single study that has been a serious evaluation of the role of both legal and illegal undocumented uh, immigrants uh, argues that they make a significant contribution in terms of uh, the economic activity that to which they contribute. Uh, of course, we have many immigrants who are very prominent in our uh, major companies. Uh, over half of the companies in Silicon Valley, in fact, have been founded and run uh, by by immigrants. So, um, you know, everywhere you see in our economy, uh, they've played a very, very important role. And you already highlighted uh, the Center for American Progress data that argues that uh, DACA people in particular, because you bring them into the system. I mean, one of the great things about DACA is that what it did was it brought people out of the shadows um, and permitted them to pursue their education, uh, to develop skills, to you know work uh, in, in jobs and develop skill sets. Uh, in many cases, actually uh, begin to build families uh, so that uh, the DACA was a very smart way of trying to address what has been this uh, very tragic refusal to uh, update our immigration policy. I mean, we are a nation of immigrants uh, and uh, I'm, everybody should have you know, an understanding of why their family came, um, whether it was for uh, religious freedom uh, or for economic opportunity. Uh, all of those kinds of things were drivers. And of course, people that are willing to get up and move are people who typically have an ambition. They have a, they have a vision of making their life better. And so immigrants have been a, uh, you know, a vital force uh, in, in the creation of the American nation. So, and I wanted to say that, that it's in reading up and preparing to talk with you about this, one thing I'm struck by is how a lot of people who object, not only to DACA, but uh, to reforming immigration, is they have a zero-sum mentality. That is to say that they what they think is that if anybody else gets better off, they're going to be worse off, that we can't all get better together. And this has in, infected America over the last 40 years 50 years in my view, uh, 
in a profound sense, we've stopped investing in ourselves. We've stopped believing in ourselves. And, and so I see this, not just DACA, but the whole failure to address this as somehow, you know, we, as I said, we don't longer believe in ourselves. And so we're, we're, we're frightened by um, uh, these kinds of, these kinds of dynamics. And of course this express, expresses itself uh, in the culture wars mm-hmm. in the kinds of, of concerns that, that people have. Uh, and it's compounded by the fact that the DACA uh, population demographically uh, is predominantly Hispanic. Uh, it is, it, but more broadly, I think people see it, and we've seen this in the political dialogue, as somehow threatening America right. uh, instead of understanding that, in fact, it's our opportunity um, to uh, bring uh, these strivers uh, here and to let them participate in the American dream. And we heard from Najeli, who's working on a degree in computer engineering. So traditionally, um, often undocumented immigrants have worked in farming, meat processing, and the restaurant industry. But DACA recipients have been moving to more skilled jobs. Well, that's exactly that is given them the opportunity. And as she was talking about that, I was thinking, okay, she graduates. She's not going to be able to find a, a job. Uh, in that uses her skill sets because of the limitations we've imposed. So what's she going to do? Well, she's going to do what will affect a, a quite a number of Americans uh, who not just ones that are not documented, but but citizens. Uh, they move to Canada because Canada is a skill oriented immigration policy. And she would pass the standards there in flying colors. Uh, and Canada is doing extremely well. I mean, and again, I, I mentioned you know, our failure to invest in ourselves. Uh, Canada now has a much higher college graduation rate than we do. Um, it also has a much higher proportion of its graduates in the STEM fields, and as say, in the science technology fields. And it's one of the reasons the Canadian economy is doing very well. And in fact, internationally, other countries have recognized the importance of investing in education uh, and have expanded their investments in education. The United States has not. And we have fallen... We used to be the world leader in college graduation, and we have fallen dramatically over the last 25 years uh, in, a, in, in terms of our ranking. And that's what I referred to earlier. We no longer invest in ourselves because we don't seem to believe in ourselves. And I see this issue around immigration policy and DACA as part of this larger framework that somehow um, uh, we're we somehow have lost sense of what we once were. Uh, we once led the world in investments in human capital, in education, in public sector research, in the quality of our infrastructure. And we've lost leadership in every single one of those areas. So Canada could be a model for us, uh, Fred. Uh, we just have a few minutes left. But when we think about you know, the immigration reform and how it almost seems like that has been put on the back burner, what will it take to put our human capital to full use? Well, I think this is, this is sort of one of these things about the dialogue is that the, the, um, uh, one is tempted to call it a phrase that has been used about um, making America great again. Uh, but making America great again, um, which is a legitimate issue, um, 
would involve, in fact, public sector investments in what once made us the world leader. We used to be the world leader in our investments in uh, infrastructure. Uh, we're now, we have by far the largest infrastructure deficit of any advanced economy in the world because we haven't been investing in our infrastructure for a very, very long time. We've made a small down payment with the recent infrastructure bill. We used to lead the world in terms of college graduation rates. I mentioned this earlier. We're now about 23rd. Um, we've fallen 23 positions in the last 30 years. I mean, think about how rapidly um, we have been losing our competitive edge. Uh, and ironically, it's because other countries have recognized that the American model is public sector investment in infrastructure and human capital. And that animates and drives the private sector vitality because it creates the skill base and creates the framework in which the private sector can, you know, have such vitality. Um, and, and if we had a serious conversation about what we need to do in America, it, immigration reform is part of that. It's also, you know, uh, addressing our educational situation. Our actually, our college graduate, our college attendance rate has been falling the last several years, um, which is a very, very odd dynamic. But it's partly because we've made our higher education the most expensive in the world, uh, and and we need to have a serious discussion about this whole array of things and how we get America back on track. That's Fred Carstensen, Professor of Economics at the University of Connecticut. Always a pleasure to get your perspective. Thank you, Fred, for your time today on the show. Delighted to be with you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. Coming up tomorrow, after a Google engineer claimed the company's artificial intelligence application was now sentient, many are wondering about the role of AI in our lives. We'll talk about the philosophy and ethics of artificial intelligence and what the future looks like for this complicated technology. We hope you join us.